Welcome to CryoTalk, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific. Featuring conversations between your host, Ava Amson, and experts in the field of cryo-electron microscopy. Today on CryoTalk, we're joined by Gokhan Tolum, Associate Professor in the School of Chemistry and Molecular Bioscience at the University of Wollongong in Australia, and Research Group Leader at the Molecular Horizons Research Institute. He talks about research funding challenges in different countries. When I was in Turkey, we would use a lot of homemade, handmade equipment, for example, mm-hmm. like you know, plexiglass glued to, to make you know, containers for running gels and things like that. How Molecular Horizons incorporated a custom-built microscope facility. When they were looking for a place to build it, they had to find on campus the area where the electrical interference was lowest. And what he does when he finds some spare time. I still have my archery equipment here. So there is an archery group here that I every so often go there and shoot with them on on weekends. All in this episode of CryoTalk. Hi, and welcome to CryoTalk. I'm Eva Amson, and I'm here today with Gokhan Tolun. Gokhan is Associate Professor in the School of Chemistry and Molecular Bioscience at the University of Wollongong in Australia and Research Group Leader at the Molecular Horizons Research Institute. So how are you today? Fine, and you? I'm good. So, I mean, it's it's morning for me and it's evening for you in Australia. Yes, it is and, evening. <laughs> now, the first question we tend to ask our guests is, can you tell us a little bit about your career so far? Yeah. So I am originally from Turkey, so I'm originally Turkish. So I started my career back in Turkey. Uh, so I, I attended uh, undergrad there uh, to bio department of biology. And then I actually started my uh, graduate uh, studies there. So at the time, uh, doing a master's was a, pre- was a prerequisite for a PhD. Mm. So I have a master's in biotechnology. And then I actually started my PhD back in Turkey and did a couple of years there. And then meanwhile, we were applying for PhD uh, positions in the US and we, we, we got an offer. So when I say we, me and my wife, <laughs> she's also a scientist. So uh, what we did, we just you know, left our program and then went to the US and started from scratch, another PhD. <laughs> So I got my PhD from University of Miami in Florida and then uh, moved to North Carolina, to University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill for my first postdoc, where I started with electron microscopy. Uh, So that was more classical EM. Uh, We were doing what is called a shadow casting uh, EM, so you you mount your molecules. You start. You still work with purified molecules, like we do in cryo EM, as we are going to talk about. But mm-hmm. in this method, uh, although you are working with purified samples mounted onto the EM grids, we are actually evaporating metal onto the uh, sample. So that's why it's, it's called shadowing. So we shadow cast the molecules by covering them by uh, evaporating metal onto them. And also negative staining, which is a pretty common technique in electron microscopy. So uh, after that, I moved on to learning cryo-EM. 
And for that, I moved to National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, in uh, Maryland, in U.S. still. And then I was there for more than a couple of years. And then I moved to another institute within the NIH uh, to continue my postdoctoral uh, training to Frederick this time, uh, uh, NCI, National Cancer Institute, Institute under NIH. And then after that, I got my first independent position uh, in Australia, uh, close to the beginning of 2018, and came here and established my independent research group with the help of my first postdoc, Jody Brewster, who is moving to an industry position tomorrow, actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think in, in a nutshell, that's that's been my career mm. so far so it's been very international and before yes. um three, it, three so, continents yeah three, yeah three continents three countries so so what are what have you found the the differences to be in the, the research environment between australia the us and even turkey where you did part of your first research yeah so uh of course there are some uh, funding considerations Mm. and limitations so you know, turkey uh the science funding in turkey is a lot more limited than in us and australia and of course the most funding is available in the us i would say mm. uh, than australia uh, but still you know people of course do the best they can everywhere scientists are scientists you know they're enthusiastic about the questions they want to answer and then uh, they do their best so when when i was in turkey we would use a lot of homemade handmade equipment for example mm. like you know plexiglass glued to to make you know, containers for running gels and things like that or you know homemade instruments for doing electroporation to transform bacteria and things like that so uh, yeah even even though funding mm. is limited people find ways to do science which yeah. is great but I wish there was more funding, of course. So yeah. and then <laughs> US, uh, of course, is you know a big country and uh, doing well financially. <laughs> so <laughs> because of that, there is of course more funding for science. So Australia is also pretty good. Uh, the issue with you know all of these is the. Uh, percentage of funding compared to the number of available scientists who would like to do research so uh, i wish there was more resources being put uh, by the uh, federal governments everywhere all over the world for doing more science so uh, i was very lucky to be awarded an nhmrc ideas grant uh, a year after coming to australia so that was more than 600,000 Australian dollars. Uh, it is sort of equivalent to the uh, NIH R01 grants, the major grants. So, but the success rate was 11%. Mm. So that means yeah. out of the 10 people applying for the grants, nine researchers are not funded, right? Yeah. So was it definitely... the first time you applied? Yes, it was the first time. Oh, I you got really lucky. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. I know. <laughs> so, uh, and then uh, I'm also a part of an 
another grant year. It's called ARC, Australian Research Council. So that is equivalent to the National Science Foundation, NSF, in the U.S. So I'm mm -hmm. also a part of that grant together with another lead academic. Uh, so, yeah, th that's the difference in funding. As the uh, scientific, uh, what is the word? Mm. Like people goes, of course, Australia is much smaller, right? Mm. like one-tenth of U.S. So, yeah. of course, when you attend a meeting in the U.S., and also people tend to go more to U.S., in, like internationally, for yeah. meetings. So I get to see you know a lot more people and then connect with a lot more people when you attend meetings in the mm. U.S. But again, Australia, although being remote, it's not too bad. So Yeah. Yeah, but I was going to ask you about yeah. international meetings, actually, because you're... Most most international conferences tend to be in the US or in Europe, and you're quite far removed from it now. So, is it do you really have to decide like, oh, is this conference going to be worth it? Because it's, it's it's a long journey. It's not only long journey, as I said, the funding is limited. Yeah. Right? So I I wouldn't mind the long journeys for attending good meetings. <laughs> so usually it comes down to you know since Australia is so remote. Yeah, for going to any meeting outside of Australia, you need to fly long distances, mm. which turns out you know, being expensive. Mm, so yeah. usually, you know, again, fun funding, uh, in addition to time, uh, becomes a limiting factor sometimes. Mm. But yes, I I do I do miss you know going to uh, those meetings in the US and meeting all those people. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And 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 what are you? What's your research focusing on at the moment? So uh, my research is studying uh, pathways in, I would say, generally nucleic acid metabolism. So studying DNA, RNA, in general. So uh, more specifically, my group is interested in studying a reaction we call single-strand annealing, uh, homologous DNA recombination. So uh, this reaction takes place pretty much in all life. Uh, so it's a very conserved mechanism of uh, stitching DNA together when it's broken. So it, it's one of the DNA repair pathways. So what happens is that when two DNA molecules are broken with some homology between them, these systems can uh, chew them up and then stitch them back together to, to make an intact piece of DNA. And this is, as I said, found in organisms as simple as bacteriophages. So bacteriophages are viruses that infect bacteria. So they are you know, that low in, in the evolution. And then also as humans. So this reaction takes place, like I said, in all organisms. So so that's what we are studying. And you may think that for a reaction that is so conserved and found in all life, we, we would know a lot about it, right? Turns yeah. out we don't, we don't know a lot about it. So, so my group is focusing on studying that. And to do that, we are using two model systems mainly. So one is the bacteriophages that I mentioned. So we are studying a few different bacteriophages and then also herpes viruses. So the, as, as the human pathogens. So mostly viral DNA recombination, but 
Uh, as I said, it's not just limited to that. For example, one of the collaboration uh, projects that we published relatively recently was studying uh, RNA metabolism, mm -hmm. so transcription. And uh, that was also an interesting project where we learned how the uh, machinery that synthesizes the RNA message from DNA template gets, when it gets stuck, uh, it's a problem because then it becomes a roadblock on the DNA. So mm -hmm. something needs to remove that, take it off. So otherwise, you know, another transcription machinery that comes bumps into that and it cannot go through, or even worse, if the DNA replication machinery comes to that, then it's, it's a disaster. So the mm. cells developed ways of rescuing these uh, stalled uh, transcription complexes. So we studied one from a bacterium uh, and showed how a factor called another protein uh, that interacts with the RNA polymerase synthesizing the RNA binds to this complex. And uh, it actually looks like we, we used to call it like a gorilla or hulk with it looks like it has two arms and a head and a body. So what it does is it puts its right arm all the way into RNA polymerase, into the active site to kick mm -hmm. out the uh, DNA uh, and the RNA from there. And with its left arm or hand, it grabs the RNA polymerase and pushes it to open it up so that, you know, it can be removed from, from the DNA template that it's stuck on. Hmm. So uh, we showed that by using cryo-EM. So, yeah, yeah, that was going to so be my these, next question, actually. So yeah. <laughs> were, you, were you using cryo-EM for that? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, we used cryo-EM for that. And we are mainly using cryo-EM also to, to study these uh, viral DNA recombination complexes uh, by determining the three-dimensional structures of these uh, machinery. I call them bio-nanomachines, so they are these fascinating complexes that carry out these processes yeah hmm. and and how many people are in your research group now because your your group is about five years old i think yeah so yeah, it, yeah as i said i i came here beginning of 2018 mm -hmm. so i was actually looking at the numbers recently so i jotted them down here so far mm -hmm. uh, my group had trained two postdocs six IP, six phd students 10 honor students and seven undergraduate students mm. so you know some of them of course like the undergrads and honor students they come and go stay yeah. for a semester or a year but i still have the phd students and uh, one of them has just submitted his thesis so he's Yay. finishing <laughs> and like, as i said one of the postdocs just moved to a company mm. so yeah training lots Great. of lots of scientists yeah do, do you have any lab traditions <laughs> lab traditions we have yeah. <laughs> we have lab lunches <laughs> nice <laughs> so like every every month or so we just go have lunch together uh, and then usually once or twice a year we go somewhere outside the campus mm -hmm. again usually it's you know lunch or uh, if we can manage it sometimes we meet at our place so it just I, I just invite all of my lab to our house mm. <laughs> and then just have a nice day nice Great. yeah 
Um, and so can you tell me a little bit about Molecular Horizons? Because I read a bit about it and it sounds like it's going to do some great things. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we already have been doing some great things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Molecular Horizons is the uh, largest investment by University of Wollongong. Uh, so it was more than $80 million to build that uh, mm. from, from scratch. And the uh, interesting thing about it is that it was designed from the ground up for cryo-EM, mainly mm. for cryo-EM. Well, housing, let's say, the cryo-EM microscopes, yeah. electron microscopes. So uh, when they were looking for a place to build it, they had to find on campus the area where the electrical interference was lowest. Oh, so wow. they said, okay, <laughs> we can only put the microscopes here. So they had to build it there. And then when they were building the building, they they didn't use ferrous materials, for example. So it's very high tech. So they have these special polymers in the uh, concrete instead of the steel bars. And instead of the uh, steel ties, they used uh, plastic ziplocks. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, when I give a talk, I joke about, oh, this is a building held up by zip ties, plastic <laughs> zip ties. <laughs> so it's a very high-tech building and designed, like I said, from the ground up to provide the best environment for these very sensitive cryo-electron microscopes. So therefore, our microscopes are performing quite well. Yeah, and so was the were the microscopes did they have to be moved from one part of the campus to another, or are they mostly new? So when I came, uh, the medium uh, and let's say microscope Arctica, Talos mm -hmm. Arctica, that was on campus, but it was in another building that was mm. in, in a room that was retrofitted. So mm. it was performing okay, but it wasn't you know, doing its best. So yeah. they had to install some active field cancellation systems and the room temperature wasn't uh, as strictly controlled. There weren't any dampeners in, in, in the room walls. Uh, so it had to be moved from that building to our building. Hmm. And the, the our high-end microscope, the big microscope, Titan Krios, that was located in the electron microscopy facility of uh, ANSTO. Hmm. So uh, that's about, I don't know, like 45 minutes drive from Wollongong. So that had to be you know, sort of taken apart and then yeah. shipped, you know, moved wow. to, to <laughs> Wollongong campus and put together again. So that was a stressful time. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, all is working. So our facility is run by uh, Dr. James Bauer, uh, mm -hmm. who is uh, also from America. So he came here from University of California, San Diego. And uh, he's doing a great job keeping our facility uh, run in tip-top shape. Great. Yeah, I think most places don't have such a like special built place for cryo em and everyone is just kind of making do with what whatever space they have so yes that's that's, that's the that's the special thing about molecular horizons absolutely you're mm. absolutely right 
And and what do you do when you're not working? Do you have any hobbies? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I have some hobbies. The thing is, when you're a teaching and research academic, uh, there isn't much time to do anything else. You're <laughs> too busy. What would you uh, like to do if you had time? Just, what, <laughs> let's put it that what, way. What I, what I used to do, let's say, when I had time <laughs> to do other things than science. Uh, so I'm an amateur photographer. So hmm. I'm not only taking pictures of molecules. I actually love taking you know photos, mostly nature, animals, uh, things like that. So I do photography when I have time. And I grew up, you know, in these like 70s, 80s. So I am a computer generation. I'm in the mm -hmm. computer generation. So I actually love playing video games. <laughs> But again, you know, unfortunately, they, they take up too much time. So <laughs> they, Yeah, they take up a lot of time sometimes. <laughs> so, so again, uh, not much of that, unfortunately. Uh, I oh. used to do, when I was in... Uh, and I at NIH in Maryland, uh, I started doing archery. Oh, great! So I was doing archery, and then I still have my archery equipment here. So there is an archery group here that I every so often go there and you know, shoot with them on 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 weekends. But but again, it's usually a few times a year, unfortunately. Ooh. And I love <laughs> snorkeling, uh, swimming like lap swimming or, or snorkeling and biking and things like that. Yeah, well, you are close to the coast, so you have a place to go snorkeling, I guess. <laughs> and do you ever combine your hobbies? Have you like taken photos of archery? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I did a little bit of that, yes. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you end up with some cool shots sometimes, like catching arrows in flight in the air and things like that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I was trying to I was I was trying to imagine archery in my head when you were talking about it. That's why I was asking if you ever photographed it because it does look interesting. And do you like to read? Do you have any book recommendations for our listeners? Yeah. And it's the same thing. I I used to read when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, uh I when I was a little kid, I started Uh, reading things like Jules Verne so I think I I, mm -hmm. I read all books by Jules Verne when I was a kid and then uh, I started reading Clive Cussler uh, more action type you know light novels mm -hmm. and uh, Tom Clancy I like Tom Clancy's books and When you asked me, I was thinking, oh, what else? What else did I like when I was reading more? And <laughs> I remember this book called Shibumi from the author Trevenian. So that mm. was an interesting book, for example. So I would recommend these. Cool. We'll have to check that out. And and what about um things on screen, film or TV? Do you have any anything that you've seen recently that you enjoyed? Uh yeah, we usually yeah. We used to go to movies, but mm -hmm. although we still do every so often, most of the time, you know, we are just streaming movies at home now. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, on weekends, usually we pick something uh, instead of going to Blockbuster and picking up a VHS. <laughs> 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 so, uh, depends on our mood, but, you know, being a 
highly doing a highly stressful job, we usually go for lighter things uh, mm -hmm. when we have time to relax a little bit. So usually we we go for comedies, light things, uh, like action movies. And again, when when you asked, I was thinking about oh, what other movies like you know, which are not so light that I liked. And uh, one thing that came into my mind was Minority Report. So. Mm. It's still sort of an actionish movie, but I think it has an interesting message, and it was I I thought it was well done, uh, well done futuristic movie. Yeah. So yeah. Do you do you like to cook? Do you are you ever in the kitchen? <laughs> <laughs> no, or no time for that either. <laughs> not not really. So usually my <laughs> wife is the one who cooks when we cook. <laughs> I'm, I'm not much of a cook. I mean, <laughs> I do like. My best uh, meal is breakfast. So like on weekends when we are preparing breakfast, I'm the usual one who cooks the eggs and things like that. But mm. other than that, I'm, I'm not really, I, I don't think I can call myself a cook. Though <laughs> when I was single back in Turkey, uh, attending the university, I, I used to cook. So I can actually cook uh, <laughs> a, a good number of Turkish dishes. <laughs> nice. And and breakfast, they say, is the most important meal of the day. So you've got that covered. <laughs> and and do you have any any favorite music? Do you listen to music? I do. I have an hour commute, one mm -hmm. way. So you know, two hours every day, I have an opportunity to listen to some music. Uh, again, uh, like with the movies. Uh, it depends on on our, on my mood, what I listen to. I listen to all sorts of music, so it's not like I like this, I don't like that. I I love mm -hmm. pretty much all genres, but uh, yeah, it depends on my mood. So uh, mm -hmm. I also yeah, every so often feel like listening to music from my time, like you know, eighties, nineties. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like, oh, but everyone know. loves the 80s and 90s music. So. <laughs> <laughs> like Sting, Queen, you know, things mm. like that. But I also listen to much newer ones, like, I don't know, like Timmy Trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> and and this is a question I love asking people. If if you were not a scientist, what would you be? What would your, your other alternative life career be? <laughs> so... Interesting question, because <laughs> I did think of this when I was looking for an independent position. So uh, these independent positions are not easy to find or easy to get. So uh, you you think about what would be plan B if, if this doesn't mm -hmm. work out. So since, I, as I said, I do photography, that was, of course, one of the things I thought of, you know, yeah. because these, especially uh, like wedding photographers, they... They do earn quite nice money, I heard. <laughs> so if I was going to do something just for money, then you know, being a photographer probably would be an alternative. And I'm also fairly good with computers. So I can actually do a lot of the IT jobs probably. <laughs> so again, you know, that would probably... Make a decent you haven't, yeah. Money. If you haven't gotten your <laughs> hadn't gotten your grants, you had some backup. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my last question is: um, Do you have any advice that you tend to give to your students, or maybe advice that you've gotten that you'd like to share with our listeners? Anything career-wise? 
anything career wise <laughs> science if you decide to do something it has to be something you love so you know you can't do science if you don't absolutely love it it's it's not easy uh and as i said like funding is getting lower and lower unfortunately mm-hmm. so uh and you know it's it's as i said the positions are not that available not many positions are available so you really need to uh love what you do for example when i was in the back in the us uh First of all, as I said, we sacrificed a lot, right? Like I, I left my family and friends and went to the US to do PhD, mm-hmm. and then you know moved on again. We left everything there, our our home, you know, all of pretty much our possessions and our friends. Unfortunately, I moved to Australia now, so it takes some sacrifice to to do to to do that, and uh, in addition to these uh when i was at the nih for about five years my wife was in north carolina still because she she had a pretty good Mm. job there so and initially i was planning to do only a postdoc for a couple of years yeah so we said okay so we can manage for a couple of years and it ended up being three years and then four years and then five years Mm. so we (laughs) actually lived in two different states for five yeah, years wow. seeing each yeah. other like once a month or so for a weekend yeah so, and it, that... it's not too far but i guess yeah if you have to do it often for just a few days it becomes a big, <laughs> big yeah trip. it was like five or six hour drive so yeah it's not that close we, we usually flew but mm. yeah that was a sacrifice for example right so mm. uh, since she's also a scientist we we have what people call the two-body problem so yeah (laughs) (laughs) we both need science jobs that are not easy to find so sometimes it requires some sacrifice yeah so you really you have to you have to love science to make the sacrifice that's that's kind of the lesson (laughs) all the sacrifices it requires yeah yeah so when i said uh difficult to find science jobs i i was referring to our specific case with me and my wife because we are uh advanced in our careers and very specialized uh, in what we do and we also require specific uh, instrumentation and equipment to be able to do what we do but getting a phd gives you lots of transferable skills in addition to the field specific uh, expertise you gain during your phd so some of these are well known like critical thinking including critical reading and ability to synthesize information so you can absorb a lot of knowledge and then think about how to uh, distill the most important part of it and put it in whatever context it needs to be presented in. So so yeah, so there are many positions available uh, in addition to academic positions uh, for someone with a PhD. For example, you can work in pharmaceutical companies, in drug development or as a product manager, if on top of your PhD, if you get an MBA degree, for example, you can become a business development manager and uh, biotech companies other than the pharmaceutical companies, uh, including startups, uh, hire scientists. And in addition to the uh, industrial positions, there are also government positions available. You can become a grant officer, for example, uh, scientific advisor, 
there are also companies that work on scientific communication, not like yours. And some of them are more specific to scientific writing. Uh, there are uh, patent-related positions since uh, science involved in industry usually uh, involves patent applications and acquiring patents. And you can also work for a, if you uh, prefer not to work for a company or a government, you can work for a non-profit organization. So there are lots of lots of options other than academia. But uh, of course, I am an academic. So uh, from my perspective, uh, someone like me who is doing novel research uh, at the moment, when we have made the discovery, uh, we are the only one in the world that knows that specific piece of information. So no one ever lived or no one living in the history of the world ever knew that knowledge, right? So then we get to tell uh, everyone else by publishing a peer-reviewed paper, a scientific article, we disseminate that information to everyone else. And from that point on in human history, that is now something known, which was uh, before we discovered that uh, was an unknown. So that's that's the moment we pushed the envelope and expanded our knowledge and that's how we scientific researchers make an impact on society make a contribution to the society and i think it's pretty cool so how, how awesome is that so all in all i love what i do and despite all of the challenges and uh, sacrifices it requires i cannot think of uh, I, I don't think I can do anything else. So thank you for your time and for giving me an opportunity uh, for this interview. Well, thank you so much, Gakan. That brings us to the end of our episode today. And thank you everyone for listening or watching CryoTalk. <laughs> thank you for listening to CryoTalk a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash cryotalk.